we're in the series of Lent, strange, strange word that we don't really use a lot. Um, it, is, it, is a, it is really a, a kind of a weird word. Um, we've been through other seasons, words that we might use. We might talk about Advent, uh, the advent of something to come. We've heard words like that. You might use that in business or family. It's, it's a little bit different word, but, but we might hear the word Advent in our lives. We went through a season called Epiphany, and again, that's another word that we, that we might use, that we might say we had an epiphany, we had a realization about something, we had an epiphany about this, so that's a word we might use. But Lent is not a word that we often use. I don't walk around very often in life and say, you know, this feels like a Lent. That would be a strange thing. We don't, it's just not something that we say very often. But what's fascinating about it is that if you look at the word Lent, it is really one of the more normal words between all three of those words. Lent simply comes from a Middle English word that means springtime. So it's kind of cool. You could now, now take this with you, and I want you to go into your neighborhoods, go into your communities, and look at your neighbors. And, you know, we're all people who talk to our neighbors around us, right? And you talk to your neighbor, they say, how you doing? You say, man, I'm having a great Lent. I think it's a beautiful Lent out here. You see this beautiful Lent? Look at the Lent taking place. And they'll be like, wow, you are a weird person. And you'll be like, yes, yes, I am. And then you can tell them, well, hey, and you can do this. You can take your glasses, kind of push it up a little bit and say, well, actually, <laughs> the word Lent is the word for springtime. Then they'll never talk to you ever again, and that might ruin the whole thing. So don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just telling you. But it's a great word, this, this word that means springtime, because I'm so glad that it's associated with this religious season, um, and it's associated for a reason, because there's this incredible reality about this word Lent, this idea of springtime, because for us who experience the change of seasons, Lent, meaning springtime, means this idea of the death of winter, the dormancy of winter, springs up into this new life that we experience. Does anybody else, and I, I don't know if you guys do this, one of my favorite parts of the year, I mean, I just, it, it, is, it is my absolute, one of my absolute favorite times of the year, is sitting on my porch, looking out, and having that experience where you look, and you begin to see just this little bit of buds on trees. Does anybody else do this? And you sort of know it's going to happen, and you're not going to see it happen because it seems to happen overnight. But you feel like the next day, you get up, you go back on that same porch, you have your coffee, you look around, and everything's all of a sudden green. And it just happens, and it's almost like there's just this special magic about that change of seasons, that, that reality of here is the death of winter, you know, visible as we look and we see these, these trees just completely barren, everything just looks so dormant, and then all of a sudden you go, I think it's about to happen, and I don't know if you do this, but this is what I do, I sit, I sit at home and I go, I think it's going to happen, I think this is it, I think this is the time, and all of a sudden the next day just green, just absolute green. The power of that is that that same reality is what happens in the story of our faith. That what we see is, we see this incredible story of the hope of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, the life, the teaching of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then this incredible awakening at Easter as death turns to life. As the idea of this, of this cold winter comes to beautiful spring. And so what happens is, as we go through these seasons, the purpose of this is we are meant to experience that. We are meant to walk through that. I, I've said this over and over again, but there is something that changes in our faith when we experience, when we walk, when we see the symbols, when we find the metaphors, when we take our time with it. Because it causes us to pause. It causes us to see and to feel and to experience something that should be regular about our lives. Because here's, here's what happens. 
One of the, one of the problems in our faith, and I think especially in modern day Christianity, is that we have a hard time with things like lament. We have a hard time with suffering. We have a hard time with difficult seasons like that. Because I think what happens is that for a lot of Christianity, we become people who are perpetually Easter people. Now, we should always have hope of Easter. We should absolutely always have hope of the resurrection and new life. But what happens when we get to walk through these seasons is we then experience, we take in the reality that suffering does exist. We take in the reality of what it means to have hope when everything seems hopeless. We're able then to walk through this story, carry it with us through different seasons, and say, I can be a person who is sitting in the reality of difficulty and suffering because I know that there is hope and I know there is new life. I know that resurrection comes. But you don't have to perpetually live in this place where you're uncomfortable and don't know what to do here. Because what do we do, again, as a community of people when somebody looks at you and says, I'm going through a difficult season. I'm going through a hard time. I feel like I'm suffering. There's a lot of angst and anguish in my life. And you look at them and go, it's okay because the hope is coming, right? And everybody goes, what are you doing? You have to be able to sit with people in that. And so if we walk through our faith like this, if we take our time through it, we don't sit there and go, why don't you just be a person of hope? You should, you're supposed to be a Jesus follower. and get over there, right? Nobody wants that. We want to be the people who walk with other people. Walking through the story, experience the story, coming to that hope, understanding and feeling that. Now, what's cool about this, we have the opportunity to do that through these seasons because we follow the story as it goes. We walk through this story. We have been doing this for so many, so many months now of, of looking at the hope of the Messiah of walking through the celebration of Christmas, of hearing the incredible stories about the teaching of Jesus. But we have to come to a point where there's a pivot. We have to come to a point where the story of these people who had waited and hoped for a Messiah, the fishermen who heard Jesus proclaiming the good news and decided to follow him, the excitement that they had, the miracles they saw, all the incredible things take place. We have to come to a pivot point where the story begins to move toward Jerusalem, where the story begins to shift towards death because we can't have the spring, we can't have the Easter without the death. So we have to prepare our hearts for that. We have to get ready for that. We can't just uh, move there as quick as we can. We have to make that shift. And I love this in the story because we get to make this shift with the disciples. And today we're gonna do it in such an incredible way we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. We've been in the book of Mark during this uh, Lent series. We've been uh, in this season, and these are the passages, again, that churches around the world are reading. Now, what's cool about Mark, Mark is a very short, sort of matter-to-the-fact, kind of a brochure take on the life of Jesus. Uh, Mark was probably the first gospel that was written. Uh, the idea is that Luke and Matthew kind of knew about Mark, and so they sort of had Mark's crib notes, and they were like adding extra pieces to it and saying, well, then there's also this story and this story and this story, because they had different people that they were writing to. But Mark is sort of like, okay, here's the facts, here's the straight you know, stuff, and he doesn't add a whole lot of flourish, he just kind of brings it all together. And so Mark is kind of quickly moving through the story, and we saw this at the beginning, that he goes, here's the first story, here's the next story, here's the next story, here's the next story, moving through it very quickly. 
And what I love about how he does this is that when he goes with the disciples through this, you really get this experience of the disciples going on an absolutely wild ride as they follow Jesus. I mean, you really, if you, if you think about it, if you try to sit with them, and this is what I want to do, is kind of sit with the disciples, you, you just get to move with them through this, and you get to kind of sit with them on the boat, and you hear this guy, you know, hey, the kingdom is coming, you know, repent for the kingdom is now, you know, come and follow me, and, and they, they look and they go, all right, let's go, and you kind of just have to go with them. You don't get time to think about it, you just, you just move. And then they start to follow him. They start to see these miracles and you get to experience all of this with them. The moments that they're sitting back and going, what is going on? And I think that's what's great about Mark. Mark should make you stop and go, what is happening? What is going on right now? And you get these disciples who are sitting there and that's the the questions they're asking. They're going, what is happening? Who is this Jesus? What is taking place should we go back to the boat? No, let's keep going. This guy's nuts. This is crazy. Let's keep following and see what happens next. And then we come to this story. And here, I think, we see, we see miracle stories where, again, I think they have lots of questions. We, we have questions. We have, we have the story of, of where Jesus cast out the demon in a synagogue. Of course, they've got all kinds of questions about that. What, what does this mean? What do we do with this? But today, we make the pivot. And we come to a savior who is somebody that they look at and they say, this is the Messiah. This is the king. He's going to set up his throne. He's going to save us from the Romans. Everything's going to be great. This is the Messiah of victory. This is the Messiah of promise. This is the Messiah of hope. Everything's going to be good. This is the reason that later on the disciples start to argue and they say, you know, when you come into your kingdom, who gets to sit at your right hand? They're like, who are the special people? Do we get to be the guys in the court who get to reign over everybody? Because they had this picture, this idea of the kind of Jesus that they were following following the Messiah that they thought that he was. And then he makes a statement. And again, Mark is so good about this because Mark doesn't prepare us for it. Mark is like, follow me, follow me, follow me through the story. And then you hit this brick wall where all of a sudden it is a shock. It is a surprise. It is an absolute protest by the disciples because Jesus is going to say, this is the kind of Messiah I actually am. And we see the disciples go, what? I wasn't expecting that. And what Mark wants us to do, again, Mark was written to early followers of Jesus. What Mark wants us to do is he's saying, I want you to experience what it was like for these disciples to have an idea, a picture of the kind of Jesus they thought they were following, the kind of king, the kind of Messiah they thought they were going to have, and what it's like when your expectations get completely shifted. And he says, you want to feel that and experience that along with them. So listen to this story and listen to how this starts because this is so, so powerful. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, I want us to hold this question. When there is a question in scripture, one of the best things that we can do is we can see that as a question that we should be asking that we should always be asking, that should be a part of our faith and our story. Who do people say I am? So one of the things that we can take from this is this is one of those opportunities that we have to look at a question in faith. Who do people say I am? And so I think we can look around our, our world today. We can look around at our neighbors and our friends and our relatives and people in our community, people around the world. Who do people say Jesus is? Who do people say that Jesus is? 
what are the things that we're hearing? What are people saying? I'm not going to give us any answers because I think that we should all be looking for that. Who do people say Jesus is? So the disciples kind of sit with that for a second and then they begin to answer Jesus. And they replied with this. Well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Now, this is one of those really cool moments that we look at, and, and we could skip over it really quick because, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. Well, they say you're John the Baptist, or you say you're Elijah, you're still one of the prophets, and you're kind of like, that is really strange. Are, are people confused? Do, do people think Jesus is going by a different name? Do they think Elijah had come back? Do they think the prophets had come back to life through Jesus? And, and I don't think that's what's taking place here. The ancient world was very different, but I don't think they're believing that Jesus is some kind of resurrected prophet or it's taken the place of his cousin John, or something like that. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what they're doing is they are beginning to compare him to other people, saying, this is who this guy is, because he seems to be a lot like this guy over here. Now, that's not really strange to us, because we do this all the time. Every time a really good basketball player comes out of college, everybody goes, well, he's the next Michael Jordan. Nobody thinks that Mike died, was resurrected, and came back in the body of another basketball player. First of all, that is ridiculous. It'll never happen. Michael Jordan's the greatest player ever. There's no way that's ever going to happen, right? Now, he might try to come back. I don't know. But hear, but hear me out. That is what people are doing. Well, he's, he, he's, he's like Michael Jordan. And what they mean is, I see everything in him that I saw in Michael Jordan. We do this with all kinds of musicians. Oh, that guitar player, he's the next Hendrix. Nobody's going to be Jimi Hendrix, but he's the next Hendrix or the next Eric Clapton or whatever. My girls had me trying to grow a beard. Friends, I'm going to be the next Keanu Reeves. The man has got a bad beard. Brother, I'm going to have a bad beard. And you're going to look at me and go, well, who does he think he is, Keanu Reeves? That's what they might say. I'm just not as sexy as Keanu. But, you know, it's either way, that's the sort of comparison that's taking place. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some are saying some of the other prophets. And you could put all of the different prophets in there. Well, he sounds like this prophet, or he sounds like this prophet, or he sounds like that prophet. Or maybe he sounds a little bit like this prophet. And then Jesus, you know, doesn't say, oh, well, guys, here's what's happening. I, I know you're trying to, you know, he, he gets this. He knows what they're doing. Then he asks another question. And again, this is the question we have to hold with us. Who do people say Jesus is? And then he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? I think about that for a minute. Hold that. This is what people say about Jesus. This is, this is how people see Jesus. But how do I see Jesus? See, in our world today, there are all different kinds of theologies and understandings of who Jesus is. You don't have to look very far to see that there are certain people who view Jesus kind of like a gumball machine. If I put in the right kind of money and I turn it the right way, then I'm going to get all the answers that I was supposed to have. They have this idea, this broken idea of the prosperity gospel that says that. Well, you know, Jesus is sort of like... Uh, you know, the, the, the God who just wants to provide everything to me, give all my blessings. I'm never going to experience any of this because that, that's, who, that's who Jesus is. And if you say that's who Jesus is, you might fall in line with that kind of mentality, but that's missing the full idea, the sense of who Jesus is. 
And there are all kinds of these ideas that you could look around and say, well, this is who people say Jesus is. But the question at the heart of all of it is, who do you say Jesus is? So he looks at these disciples. And again, just remember that these disciples, sometimes we, we, we have this idea that, you know, we, we put saint before the words of all of these people. We talk about Saint Peter. We even talk about, in these terms of Saint Peter, standing at the gates, you know, getting ready to welcome people in. Man, Peter was, was wrong. He was messed up. He didn't always have it figured out. Oftentimes he, he missed what Jesus was saying. So there's a lot of imperfection here. And I think it's a lot like us. We're following Jesus. We don't know exactly what he's talking about all the time. It's okay to sometimes get it wrong. There's a lot of grace and a lot of mercy in Jesus. So he looks at them and he says, well, what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? And something cool happens here that Peter answers. And I think Peter really takes a chance. He says, you are the Messiah. And I think it's really a bold statement. Like, and this is who Peter was. Peter was, was always the guy who was willing to say exactly what was on his heart. He wore it on his sleeve. He would just say what was on his mind. So before anybody else had a chance to say anything, he says, well, you are the Messiah. And remember, this was, a, this was an understanding. This was a, 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 a mindset about the kind of Savior that was to come, the kind of Savior that was promised, the Messiah. I wrote it in my notes that this way, the Messiah was a long-awaited Savior. Now listen to all of this. Who would rescue his people, lead them into a new era of time, establish a kingdom without end. So think about these people who had established their kingdom after the escape of slavery in, in, in Egypt, come into Israel are constantly being taken over by other people who establish their kingdom, get taken over again, right? We see this all throughout the stories. And then we see the Romans come in. The Romans take over. They, they um, are really just controlling everything, and, and there's no independence. There's no freedom. Um, and so they look around, and, and there were all these times that people said, well, we don't want Rome to be leading us. If you back up just a few um, hundred years, you see different places where people came in and they tried to attack the Romans. They tried to gain that sense of peace. And what people would do is they would look and they would say, oh, this guy, this guy must be the Messiah because he's coming in to rescue us from the Romans. And this happened all the time. These people would come in, they would gather a group of people, they would cause an insurrection, they would battle against the Romans, they would lose. Some of them would be crucified, they would be killed. The insurrection would be put down, Rome would take back over control. And so there was this awaiting for this Messiah, this hope. And over and over again, that promise was kind of defeated and just defeated by the Romans. They were too strong. There was too much power. So Peter looks at Jesus and he goes, well, you're the Messiah. You're the hope. And I want you to hear in Peter's mind, I think he's waiting like, so when do we go? I know you're doing all this teaching. You're, sh you're showing everybody who you are. You're doing these miracles and all of these people are starting to follow you. And I think he's kind of waiting. And when do we go get the swords? And when do we go get the battle armor? And when do we get all these people that we've got following us to join in with us? When do we take the Romans? Because we've got the people now. We've got the king and we're ready to go. And this is Peter's mindset. This, this is what he's got behind all this idea of Jesus being the Messiah. And again, what also is cool about this 
is that Peter also saw no comparison. Peter wasn't answering Jesus and going, well, you're John the Baptist, or you're like Elijah, or you're like one of the prophets, or you're like these kind of people. He's like, there has been no one like you that I have ever seen before. See, Peter had never signed himself up with any of these other messiahs before, but this one, he said, this is the one I'm going to choose to follow. This is the messiah. Now, all that sounds great. And this sort of sounds like Mark could go anywhere. And I've I've tried to say this. Like, again, imagine us sitting around a campfire telling these stories to people. And and you've never heard this story before. And you're in this story and you're going, what's going to happen next? Is this where Jesus goes, you're right. Let's get the swords. Let's get the horses and the armor and the chariots. Let's go. And there are people who think that's where the story is headed. There is Peter who thinks that is where the story is headed. Get in his mind. Get in his expectations that that's how he is answering that this is the kind of Jesus. And then listen what Jesus does. It's incredible. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he does this all over the place. Casts out a demon and performs a miracle and he goes, shh, don't tell anybody. What is he doing? Doesn't he want people to know? Well, guys, again, if everybody knows, and if he had had looked at them and said, well, I'm the Messiah, remember the expectations. It's not time for that yet. Because because what's going to happen is the Romans are going to hear about it, the powers that are going to hear about it are going to go, this guy's a threat. There's still more for Jesus to do. So he goes on, he goes, don't tell, don't tell anybody yet. Shh, be quiet about it. Then listen, then listen what happens next. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And this is a, a, a title for Jesus. This is a title for the Messiah, okay, Son of Man. So he then began to teach them that he would suffer many things. He'd be rejected by elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And then listen, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, if we put these two scenes, I want to break this from 27 to 29 and 30, 31, and I want you to think of these as like two different sort of TV episodes. I just saw a video where a, a guy was talking to his daughter. She's a Gen Zer. He's like an Xer, and he was trying to explain to her how TV used to work, and, he would be, and she'd be like, so, so, I mean, you could just like watch whatever you want, and he's like, no, 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 no. So we would all have to sit down at a certain time. If your dinner wasn't still in the microwave, it wasn't ready, they don't wait for you. The show starts. And she goes, well, couldn't you DVR it? He's like, oh, sweetheart. We had an antenna. And it just played. And he was like, and then the episode would play. And everybody watched the episode, and it would end. And Jill and I were just talking about this in the car yesterday. I said, do you remember when Ross was like, I take you, Rachel. And the collective world lost their minds. There wasn't a single person in America that didn't go, I take you, Rachel. What? Like, right, your mind just, like, it exploded. I mean, I remember, like, we literally, our brains exploded. And then I was like, what's going to happen? And we're like, oh, no, we have to wait five months to find out. Awesome. I don't get to binge the next episode. This is how TV, and it was better. I'm just going to say it was better. But anyways, I want you to imagine this like that. This is like two episodes of TV taking place here. Then the one ends like this. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And the screen fades to white. 
And this glorious music comes up. Next time on Jesus the Christ. Right? And everybody's kind of waiting, like, what's going to happen next? And then the next episode comes. You wait like six months for it. And this one comes. And he says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by everybody. The elders, the chief priests, the teachers, all these people who are in power. He said, I'm going to be killed. And this episode ends completely different. You can literally hear like the lone violin and a fade to black and darkness just sort of settling over the episode. And friends, this is the pivot. This is the pivot point in Lent where we go from this incredible celebration of Jesus as this baby who is born, who is raised and and grows into this man who begins to teach and tell miracles and he's the hope, the Messiah, all that he brings, you know, all this excitement, all this joy. You can almost associate that with the post idea of Easter, of this Messiah who is risen again, this victorious promised Messiah that you're waiting for. But sandwiched in between is this dark episode of suffering and death. And if we skip it, if we miss that, we miss a reality of who Jesus was and what it means to have faith in this man. So Peter, this is amazing, Peter's so shocked by this. He appears to only hear certain words that Jesus said because some of the words we know, he says that he must be killed. And then he says, and after three days, rise again. He sort of gives like a teaser there, but Peter is so shocked. He is so appalled by this that he doesn't know what to do. So he responds in a completely different way. He's shocked. He's horrified. He did the unthinkable, and he grabs Jesus, and he goes, come here. Get over here. He pulls him aside. He goes, what are you doing? Shut up. Are you kidding me right now? Look, I mean, it's in the text. Listen. He spoke plainly about this. So Jesus, not in parables, not not in secrets, clear. I am going to die. That's the kind of Messiah I am. Peter took him aside, and they used one of the heaviest words here. He began to rebuke him. I mean, guys, this is bold. This is audacious. Like, I, I want you to hear what happened to Peter. I want you to feel this. That Peter looks and he goes, you're the Messiah, He's all excited. And then he kind of looks at him. Jesus turns away. He begins to look at the crowd. And he says, well, guys, here's the deal. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And Peter is over here. And he hears this. And he goes. And you can just, you can feel it in the text. That he just, he, he transitions from this joy and this excitement to, What? I gave up fishing. I gave up my life for this. I've heard these stories. I know where these stories are. What are you talking about? And he comes over, and I just, I, I want to take some liberty here that I think he looks at Jesus and that word rebuke. And guys, he is grabbing Jesus and saying, are you kidding me right now? Are you serious right now? And I want you to see how Jesus replied, because this is incredible. So when Jesus turned, looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And it's almost hard for us to imagine this shouting match. 
But I want you to imagine that this is Peter and Jesus going toe-to-toe about who the Messiah is supposed to be. And Jesus goes right back at him. Jaws are probably dropping. He looks at Peter and he goes, get behind me, Satan. And I just imagine everybody goes, whoa! Whoo! Jesus, what are you doing? But this is a huge, huge purpose here. Earlier on in the book of Mark, if we backed up, the author referenced how Jesus was tempted after his baptism. A 40-day temptation, which is why we have 40 days of Lent. It, it follows this pattern of Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, Mark doesn't give a very uh, clear uh, uh, story of what happened at the temptation. He just says that Jesus went out into the desert for 40 days. Matthew and Luke, who have some different stories to tell us about that, give us a story behind what happened at that temptation. Some people say that it is um, because nobody was there. Jesus was alone in the desert, right? Okay, so we don't have like a camera following. It's not like like one of the Mario video games, the camera's following Jesus. We have to remember that these are stories being told. So some people say, perhaps this is an autobiographical story that Jesus told people. Here's what happened at my temptation. We don't really understand, we don't really know, but we know what, what it meant. What it meant was that, that, that he goes into the desert, he is tempted to be a different kind of Messiah. He's tempted to look around the world and he can have all of these kingdoms if he wants them. I'm not going to be that kind of Messiah. He has the ability to meet every single need of every single person. Do whatever he wants. You can take these rocks and turn them into stone. You'll take care of yourself. You can take care of everybody else. All suffering is going to end. Be that kind of Messiah. No, I'm not going to be that kind of Messiah. Okay, this is, this is a huge pivot point because he says, I'm not going to be the Messiah that people had expected me to be. So when Peter looks at him and says, Jesus, what are you doing? He says, get away from me. Get behind me, Satan. You're trying to cause me to be the kind of Messiah that I've always rejected that I would be. He said, you only have your human concerns in mind about what kind of Messiah I'm supposed to be. He said, I have a completely different mindset here. See, Mark's tax- tactic here was very different. See, he didn't tell us about all that that took place there. Instead, he was preparing us for this moment. He just sort of skims right by the temptation story. So we get here and we are hit with this like a ton of bricks. That all of a sudden we're like Peter going, well, wait a minute, what kind of Messiah are you thinking you're going to be? And he says, no, get behind me with that. I'm a different kind. And if you want to know who Jesus really is, and I think we all want to know who really is Jesus? Uh, who do I say he is? And I have to begin to probe the depths of my understanding of who Jesus is. Who really is Jesus? If you want to know, we have to hold this tension in place. We have to hold this pivot point in place that is taking place here. We have to be prepared, like Peter, to have all of our expectations about who Jesus is, to be completely shattered to understand the answer to that question, who is Jesus. Now, Martin Luther talked about this tension, this hinge point. He talked about what was a theology of glory and then a theology of the cross. And again, I want you to hold this tension in place. The theology of glory is built on the assumptions of how a God is expected to act in the world. This is the theology of glory that Peter was living with. The theology of the cross, however, is God's self-revelation that we see in the suffering and death of Jesus. So one theology says, well, this is how I expect Jesus to be. This is how I expect God to act. And through the cross, the pivot point that we look at everything 
that we see everything in theology and life through. He says, but this is what I look like. He says, this is who I am. That's why last week we read John 3.16. And we said at that moment, he stretches out his arms and he dies. And he says, for God so loved the world. You say, but, 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 but what all does that mean? We wrestle with it. We sit with it. What does the cross really mean? Thousands of years, theologians have wrestled with, well, how does the cross save, and how does the resurrection save, and how does all of this work? And they all come with different places and different understandings and different pieces, but what they do all center on is, it is the place that we see who God really is. A suffering God of love. So what I want to do, Kurt's going to come up, and, and he's going to sing, and Lindsay's going to come up real quick. And we're going to pause here, and then we have a short break, and then we're going to finish the story, because I want you to see how the pivot point turns here. But we're going to have a moment here where we're going to take communion together, because what I want us to do before we conclude the rest of the story is I want us to come to this table. And I want us to have that pivot point where, again, we're not trying to create a full theology of the cross here. We're just simply sitting in the reality that he would suffer and he would die. Because this is Peter's experience. This is my expectation of who I thought that, that Jesus was. But the reality is that he is a suffering king who dies for me. And we have to sit in that. It, we, have to, we have to wrestle with that. That Why? How? What? What is going on in this story? We want to feel the tension of this. The tension that he chose this path. Now this was a normal thing in the church and it's a normal thing in the early church. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was writing to this church. And I want you to again imagine being in the first century. <laughs> You hear all these things about Jesus and you get this letter. Okay, this is old news to us, but they get this letter for the first time. And Paul writes to these people and he says, For I received, and here, here, imagine hearing this for the first time. I received from the Lord what I'm passing on to you. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in a remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, and I can hear these words, in remembrance of me. Then he goes on, he says, for whenever you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want you to hear what Paul is doing here. He says, you're not proclaiming his resurrection. So these people began to follow Jesus because they said, there's this Messiah who has been resurrected, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to hear about his death. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You come, come sit with me. Because if you sit with me in his death, there is something amazing that takes place. So let's sit in that for just a moment, and then we'll close up. God, as we come to this table this morning, we reach this pivot point. We come to this place where we have these expectations, these hopes of who Jesus is, but here we pause, here we stop. Here we take these moments to just remember 
Help each and every one of us as we come to this table, take this cup and take this bread to remember your blood poured out on that cross, the, the, the bread of his body broken for us. And help us just to sit in that reality of a Messiah who died. So when Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter's right. It's the Messiah. He's the king. And then it goes on and it goes into this idea that he is the Messiah. He is the king who would die. And then, and then before, and you guys can sit down if you want this, okay. Before, before he has a chance to really answer that. I mean, we get to sit with this for a bit, right? But again, remember, this is a story that is continuing on. So, so the answer begins, you, you are the king, you are the Messiah, who would die for me? Then the question becomes, well, then who am I? I, I am a follower of Jesus, but then Jesus says this about what that means. He goes on and he says, then he called the crowd to him. This is right after. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but for whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will say it. And again, I just have to imagine that Peter is sitting to the side over here. He had looked at Jesus and he said, what are you doing? And Jesus says, get behind me because you have human concerns in your mind, not what I'm here to do. What I'm here to do is to suffer and to die. That's the kind of Messiah I am. And then he turns away and he begins to look at the crowd and he says, now, if any of you want to follow me, you're going to do the same. And I wonder if Peter is like, that's what I was worried about. That's what I was worried he was going to say. Are you kidding me? And he can't believe that the answer to what kind, of, what kind of king is this is a king that would die. And the answer is, well, then who are you as his disciple? One who would also die. Take up their cross and follow him. Now listen for the context. Less than a lifetime of years before Jesus spoke these words, guys. Try to imagine this. 2,000 people who lived in the region where Jesus and his followers grew up. Neighbors and family members, people that were, that were leaders in, in the region, were crucified by the Romans. 2,000. So I want you to imagine a five, six, seven-year-old Jesus, a five or six, seven-year-old Peter, and all of these other disciples— these people who remember as children what it was like the horrific reality of 2,000 people being crucified by the Romans. And Jesus has the audacity to look at them and say, and that's what it looks like to be my follower. But here's the, here's the point. Like billboards, Rome used these crosses to serve to say that there was no kingdom except Rome. There, there was no kingdom except the one that was centered in Rome. And any attempt to overthrow it, is what they're saying, was futile. It'll never happen. And now these disciples who thought that Jesus was their only hope to do what nobody else had done, to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, were told by Jesus the only thing that would answer it, the only thing that would solve it, the only thing that would change the world would be to willingly suffer 
and die. They don't even get a chance to battle. They don't even get a chance to fight. Just lay it down. Pick up the cross before they even hand it to you and get on it and die. Feels like really good news, doesn't it? But remember where we are in the story. Remember this pivot point that we're at. Remember how Peter had just rebuked Jesus because he didn't think Jesus was doing what messiahs were supposed to do. Jesus showed his followers here that he wasn't looking for people who would just be impressed by miracles, who, who, who would be impressed by who he was. They would be transformed by following his example. See, Jesus is saying, I don't want followers who just see what I have done, who look at me and say, well, you are the Messiah. You are the King. You're going to make all of this right. He says, no, 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 that's fine, but I'm also going to suffer and die. And if you want to be my followers, you will follow my example in that. And this is a huge part of the, the reality of what it means to live the pattern of the Christian faith. So then we see this pattern living out. So who is Jesus and who am I? Who is Jesus and who am I in light of the revelation of this incredible pivot? We go back to the Apostle Paul who answered this question again for early followers of Jesus. Confessing his own transformation in a letter, he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul says is, no, Jesus wasn't saying, go put yourself physically up on a cross. He said, you are to die to everything you are so that this crucified and risen king can live in you. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Man, the life that I now live in this body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Paul's talking riddles. Jesus is talking riddles. If I try to save my life, I'll lose it. The only way to save it is to lose it. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the answer to all these questions is yes. Want to save your life? Lose it. Want to lose your life? Save it. <laughs> what is happening? It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives? Yes. But I still live? Yes with new life, with Christ who lives in you, yes. If you try to save your life by holding on to all the things that matter, you will come to the end of life with nothing that matters. People who live like this find out that they may have everything they wanted, but they don't have anything that they want. I mean, this is just common sense here. You may have everything you've wanted, but you don't want anything that you have, the things that you think will matter don't matter in the end. A life given for, his, for Jesus and for his kingdom has a different priority list. I feel like this is so close to what I've experienced because I saw this in my dad. My dad got to the end of his life and nothing else mattered except Christ in him. Nothing else mattered except the good news of Jesus. My dad was still evangelizing at the very end of his life to anybody that he met as he was dying and suffering from cancer because he said, it doesn't matter. He said, I wouldn't have changed anything about my life because giving my life to the work of Jesus and serving people, even serving the very people that he got his cancer from by being a nurse in Vietnam, that, that those things 
He said, I don't want to give any of that up because that was the good news of the kingdom that I was able to care and love for people who nobody else wanted to care for love for. And even if that meant that he was going to suffer and die, he wouldn't have traded it for anything. What an example. And that's what Paul is saying to you and to me. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do, that everything within us, he says, let it all die because everything, none of that is worth it for the sake of the good news of Jesus. Guys, in here, let me put this in some words that we can remember. The only answer, and I've I've said this over and over again, but listen to this, the only answer to hate is what? Peace. The The only answer to greed is to what? To give. The only answer to exclusion is what? To welcome with open arms. The only answer to death that comes from the darkness of this world comes through the death and rebirth found in a light that pierced it, that was tried to be made dormant and would rise again. Jesus says, if you want to change the world, you have to change and die to the things of this world because then you will live in such a way that you will transform everything around this world. The cross is the ultimate figure of death. It is the ultimate picture of death. And somehow, God took a torture device, a Roman torture device that 2,000 people in Jesus' time had been placed upon, that Jesus himself was placed upon. God had the power through his resurrection power to turn that torture device into the biggest symbol of hope and faith and life and grace and mercy ever. And imagine then what he can do with you and with me. And this is why this pivot point matters so much. Because the resurrection of Jesus matters nothing without the suffering and the death. Our lives mean nothing in resurrection without death. Dying to self so that we can live in Christ. This is the pivot point of Lent. And this is what takes us to Easter So in light of that, I want us to stand together. And I want us to read the words. Would you stand with me? And then we're going to close up. Tim, go to the next slide. No, the back back one. The verse. Yeah. And I want to be honest about this. Um, I'm not going to have us read it out loud. I'm going to read it out loud. But this morning, if you believe this confession of faith, I want you to say it in your heart. I want you to say it today. If you want to speak it out loud, that's fine. But what I want to do is I want to give us room for people in this space that maybe you feel like I've never confessed this kind of confession about Jesus. I've never answered that who I am is someone who has died and allowed Christ to live in me. So I'm going to read this this morning. And if you want to read it out loud and boldly read it out loud, you're more than welcome to do that. That doesn't mean the people who are being silent are people who don't believe this, okay? It just means that we're all getting a chance to say these words in our own way this morning. Does that make sense? So let's say it together and then close. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow, 
I mean, guys. Imagine a group of people gathering together, carrying each other's burdens, <laughs> loving their community, loving this world, loving each other. Who lived like that? Who recognized that everything we do, all the ways that we walk, all the things that we do are because we are living with Christ in us. In all of the things that hold us back from being the kind of people that Jesus wants it to be, we have continued to crucify over and over again. And we say, this stuff has to die to come out of my life for the Holy Spirit to come and fill my life. That is the kind of people that we are called to be.